0: Welcome to today's Triple Z. The Triple Z Podcast is a daily program that you can use to help you fall asleep each night. Just turn down the volume, lay back, and enjoy as you fall asleep. Today we are reading from the book Moby Dick. We'll be reading chapters 23 to 31. Published in 1851, Moby Dick was based in part on author Herman Melville's own experiences on a whale ship. The novel tells the story of Ahab, the captain of a whaling vessel called the Pequod, who has a three-year mission to collect and sell the valuable oil of whales at the behest of the ship's owners. If you enjoy our program, please be sure to write us a review on your podcast platform and share us with a friend you both might sleep just a little better at night. Our website is triple Z. That's three Z's dot media. You can also like and share our content on Facebook or our Instagram account, ZZZ underscore media underscore podcast. Music for today's episode was provided by the sleep channel on Spotify. Chapter 23, The Lee Shore. Some chapters back, one Balkington was spoken of, a tall Newland Mariner, encountered in New Bedford at the inn. When on that shivering winter's night, the Pequot thrust her vindictive bows into the cold malicious waves, who should I see standing at her helm but Balkington? I looked with sympathetic awe and fearfulness upon the man, who in midwinter just landed from a four years dangerous voyage, could so unrestingly push off again for still another tempestuous term. The land seemed scorching to his feet. Wonderful as things are ever the unmentionable, deep memories yield no epitaphs, this six-inch chapter is the stoneless grave of Bulkington. Let me only say that it fared with him as with the storm-tossed ship that miserably drives along the leeward land. The port would fain give succor, the port is pitiful, in the port is safety, comfort, hearthstone, supper, warm blankets, friends, all that's kind to our mortalities. But in that gale, the port, the land, is that ship's direst jeopardy, she must fly all hospitality, one touch of land, Though it but graze the keel would make her shudder through and through with all her might she crowds all sail offshore in so doing fights gains the very winds that fain would blow her homeward seeks all the lash sees landlessness again for refuge's sake for lonely rushing into peril her only friend her bitterest foe know ye now bulkington Glimpses do you seem to see of that mortally intolerable truth that all deep, earnest thinking is but the intrepid effort of the soul to keep the open independence of her sea while the wildest winds of heaven and earth conspire to cast her on the treacherous, slavish shore? But as in landlessness alone resides highest truth, shoreless, indefinite as God, so, better is it to perish in the howling infinite than being gloriously dashed upon the lee? even if that were safety. For worm-like then, oh, who would crave and crawl to land, terrors of the terrible? Is all this agony so vain? Take heart, take heart, O oh Bulkington, bear thee grimly demigod. Up from the spray of the ocean perishing, straight up leaps thy apotheosis. Chapter 24 The Advocate As Queequeg and I are now fairly embarked in this business of whaling, and as this business of whaling has somehow come to be regarded among landsmen as a rather unpoetical and disreputable pursuit, therefore, I am all anxiety to convince ye, ye landsmen, of the injustice hereby done to us hunters of whales. In the first place, it may be deemed almost superfluous to establish the fact that among people at large, the business of whaling is not accounted on a level with what are called the liberal professions. If a stranger were introduced into any miscellaneous metropolitan society, it would but slightly advance the general opinion of his merits were he presented to the company as a harpooner, say, and if in emulation of the naval officers he should append the initials SWF, Sperm Whale Fishery, to his visiting card, such a procedure would be deemed preeminently presuming and ridiculous. Doubtless, one leading reason why the world declines honoring us whalemen is this: they think that, at best, our vocation amounts to a butchering sort of business, and that when actively engaged therein, we are surrounded by all manner of defilements. Butchers we are, that is true. But butchers, also, and butchers of the bloodiest badge have been all martial commanders whom the world invariably delights to honor. And as for the matter of the alleged uncleanliness of our business, ye shall soon be initiated into certain facts hitherto pretty generally unknown and which, upon the whole, will triumphantly plant the sperm whale ship at least among the cleanliest things of this tidy earth. But even granting the charge in question to be true, what disordered slippery decks of a whale ship are comparable to the unspeakable carrying of those battlefields from which so many soldiers return to drink in all ladies' these plaudits? And if the idea of peril so much enhances the popular conceit of the soldier's profession, let me assure ye that many a veteran who has freely marched up to a battery would quickly recoil at the apparition of the sperm whale's vast tail fanning into eddies the air over his head. For what are the comprehensible terrors of man compared with the interlinked terrors and wonders of God? But, though the world scouts as whale hunters, yet does it unwittingly pay us the profoundest homage, yeah, an all-abounding adoration. For almost all the tapers, lamps, and candles that burn round the globe, burn as before so many shrines, to our glory. But look at this matter in other lights, weigh it in all sorts of scales, see what we whale men are and have been. Why did the Dutch into wit's time have admirals of their whaling fleets? Why did Louis the sixteenth. of France, at his own personal expense, fit out whaling ships from Dunkirk and politely invite to that town some score or two of families from our own island of Nantucket? Why did Britain between the years seventeen fifty and seventeen eighty eight pay or our whalemen in bounties upwards of one million pounds? And lastly, How comes it that we whalemen of America now outnumber all the rest of the banded whalemen in the world, sail a Navy of upwards of 700 vessels, manned by 18,000 men, yearly consuming $4 of million, the ship's worth at the time of sailing $20 million, and every year importing into our harbors a well-reaped harvest of $7 million. How comes all this, if there be not something puissant in whaling? But this is not the half, look again. I freely assert that the cosmopolite philosopher cannot, for his life, point out one single peaceful influence which within the last 60 years has operated more potentially upon the whole broad world taken in one aggregate than the high and mighty business of whaling. One way and another, it has begotten events so remarkable in themselves and so continuously momentous in their sequential issues that whaling may well be regarded as that Egyptian mother who bore offspring themselves pregnant from her womb. It would be a hopeless, endless task to catalog all these things. Let a handful suffice. For many years past, the whale ship has been the pioneer in ferrying out the remotest and least known parts of the earth. She has explored seas and archipelagos which had no chart, where no Cook or Vancouver had ever sailed. If American and European men of war now peacefully ride in once-savage harbors, let them fire salutes to the honor and glory of the whale ship, which originally showed them the way, and first interpreted between them and the savages. They may celebrate as they will the heroes of exploring expeditions, your Cooks, your Cruzensterns, but I say that scores of anonymous captains have sailed out of Nantucket that were as great and greater than your cook and your cruising stern. For in their suckerless empty-handedness, they, in the heathenish sharp waters, and by the beaches of unrecorded javelin islands, battled with virgin wonders and terrors that Cook with all his marines and muskets would not willingly have dared. All that has made such a flourish in the old South Sea voyages, Those things were, but the lifetime commonplaces of our heroic Nantucketers. Often, in ventures which Vancouver dedicates three chapters to, these men accounted unworthy of being set down in the ship's common log, ah, the world, oh, the world, until the whale fishery rounded Cape Horn, no commerce but colonial scarcely any intercourse but colonial, was carried on between Europe and the long line of the opulent Spanish provinces on the Pacific coast. It was the whaleman who first broke through the jealous policy of the Spanish crown, touching those colonies, and, if space permitted, it might be distinctly shown how from those whalemen at last eventuated the liberation of Peru, Chile, and Bolivia from the yoke of old Spain and the establishment of the eternal democracy in those parts. That great America on the other side of the sphere, Australia, was given to the enlightened world by the whaleman. After its first blunderborne discovery by a Dutchman, all other ships long shunned those shores as pestiferously barbarous, but the whale ship touched there. The whale ship is the true mother of the now mighty colony. Moreover, in the infancy of the first Australian settlement, the emigrants were several times saved from starvation by the benevolent biscuit of the whale ship luckily dropping an anchor in their waters. The uncounted Isles of all Polynesia confess the same truth and do commercial homage to the whale ship that cleared the way for the missionary and the merchant and in many cases carried the primitive missionaries to their first destinations. Yet that double bolted land, Japan is ever to become hospitable, it is the whale ship alone to whom the credit will be due, for already she is on the threshold. But if, in the face of all this, you still declare that whaling has no aesthetically noble associations connected with it, then am I ready to shiver 50 lances with you there and unhorse you with a split helmet every time? The whale has no famous author, and whaling no famous chronicler, you will say. The well known famous author and wailing no famous chronicler? Who wrote the first account of our Leviathan? Who but mighty Job? And who composed the first narrative of a whaling voyage? Who, but no less a prince than Alfred the Great, who, with his own royal pen, took down the words from other the Norwegian whale hunter of those times? And who pronounced our glowing eulogy in parliament? Who, but Edmund Burke? True enough, but then Whalmen themselves are poor devils, they have no good blood in their veins. No good blood in their veins? They have something better than royal blood there. The grandmother of Benjamin Franklin was Mary Morrill, afterwards, by marriage, Mary Folger, one of the old settlers of Nantucket, and the ancestors to a long line of Folgers and Harpooners, All kith and kin to noble Benjamin, this day darting the barbed iron from one side of the world to the other. Good again, but then I'll confess that somehow whaling is not respectable. Whaling not respectable? Whaling is imperial. By old English statutory law, the whale is declared a royal fish. Asterisk. Oh, that's only nominal. The whale himself has never figured in any grand imposing way. The whale never figured in any grand imposing way? In one of the mighty triumphs given to a Roman general upon his entering the world's capital, the bones of a whale brought all the way from the Syrian coast were the most conspicuous object in the symbol procession, Asterisk. Asterisk See subsequent chapters for something more on this head. Granted, since you cite it, but say what you will, there is no real dignity in wailing. No dignity in wailing? The dignity of our calling the very heavens attest. Cetus is a constellation in the south. No more! Drive down your hat in presence of the Tsar and take it off to Kwekwek. No more! I know a man that, in his lifetime, has taken three hundred and fifty whales. I account that man more honorable than that great captain of antiquity who boasted of taking as many walled towns. And, as for me, if, by any possibility, there be any as yet undiscovered prime thing in me, if I shall ever deserve any real repute in that small but high-hushed world which I might not be unreasonably ambitious of, if hereafter I shall do anything that, upon the whole, a man might rather have done than have left undone if, at my death, my executors, or more properly my creditors, find any precious manuscripts in my desk, then here I prospectively ascribe all the honor and the glory to whaling. For a whale ship was my Yale College and my Harvard. Chapter 25 Postscript In behalf of the dignity of whaling, I would fain advance naught but substantiated facts. But after embattling his facts, an advocate who should wholly suppress a not unreasonable surmise which might tell eloquently upon his cause, such an advocate, would he not be blameworthy? It is well known that at the coronation of kings and queens, even modern ones, a certain curious process of seasoning them for their functions is gone through. There is a salt cellar of state, so called, and there may be a castor of state. How they use the salt, precisely, who knows? Certain I am, however, that a king's head is solemnly oiled at his coronation even as a head of salad. Can it be, though, that they anoint it with a view of making its interior run well as they anoint machinery? Much might be ruminated here, concerning the essential dignity of this regal process, because in common life we esteem but meanly and contemptibly a fellow who anoints his hair, and palpably smells of that anointing. In truth, a mature man who uses hair oil, unless medicinally, that man has probably got a quacky spot in him somewhere. As a general rule, he can't amount to much in his totality. But the only thing to be considered here is this, what kind of oil is used at coronations? Certainly it cannot be olive oil, nor macassar oil, nor castor oil, nor bears oil, nor train oil, nor cod liver oil. What then can it possibly be, but sperm oil in its unmanufactured, unpolluted state, the sweetest of all oils? Think of that, ye loyal Britons. We will men supply our kings and queens with coronation stuff. Chapter 26 Knights and Squires The chief mate of the Pequod was Starbuck, a native of Nantucket, and a Quaker by descent. He was a long, earnest man, and though born on an icy coast, seemed well adapted to endure hot latitudes, his flesh being hard as twice-baked biscuit transported to the Indies, his live blood would not spoil like bottled ale. He must have been born in some time of general drought and famine or upon one of those fast days for which his state is famous. Only some 30 years summers had he seen those summers had dried up all his physical superfluousness. But this, his thinness, so to speak, seemed no more the token of wasting anxieties and cares than it seemed the indication of any bodily blight. It was merely the condensation of the man. He was by no means ill-looking, quite the contrary. His pure tight skin was an excellent fit, and closely wrapped up in it and embalmed with inner health and strength like a revivified Egyptian, this starbucks seemed prepared to endure for long ages to come and to endure always, as now, for be it polar snow or torrid sun, like a patent chronometer, his interior vitality was warranted to do well in all climates. Looking into his eyes, you seemed to see there the yet lingering images of those thousandfold perils he had calmly confronted through life. A staid, steadfast man, whose life, for the most part, was a telling pantomime of action and not a tame chapter of sounds. Yet, for all his hearty sobriety and fortitude, there were certain qualities in him which at times affected and in some cases seemed well nigh to overbalance all the rest uncommonly conscientious for a seaman and endued with a deep natural reverence, the wild watery loneliness of his life did therefore strongly incline him to superstition, but to that sort of superstition, which in some organizations seems rather to spring somehow from intelligence than from ignorance. Outward portents and inward presentiments were his. And if at times these things bent the welded iron of his soul, Much more did his faraway domestic memories of his young Cape wife and child tend to bend him still more from the original ruggedness of his nature and open him still further to those latent influences which, in some honest-hearted men, restrain the gush of daredevil daring so often evinced by others in the more perilous vicissitudes of the fishery. I will have no man in my boat, said Starbuck, who is not afraid of a whale. By this, he seemed to mean, not only that the most reliable and useful courage was that which arises from the fair estimation of the encountered peril, but that an utterly fearless man is a far more dangerous comrade than a coward. I, I said Stubb, the second mate, Starbuck, there, is as careful a man as you will find anywhere in this fishery. But we shall ere long see what that word careful precisely means when used by a man like Stubb, were almost any other whale hunter. Starbuck was no crusader after perils, and him courage was not a sentiment, but a thing simply useful to him and always at hand upon all mortally practical occasions. Besides, he thought, perhaps, that in this business of whaling, courage was one of the great staple outfits of the ship, like her beef and her bread, and not to be foolishly wasted. Wherefore he had no fancy for lowering for whales after sundown, nor for persisting in fighting a fish that too much persisted in fighting him. For, thought Starbuck, I am here in this critical ocean to kill whales for my living, and not to be killed by them for theirs, and that hundreds of men had been so killed, Starbuck well knew. What doom was his own father's? Where, in the bottomless deeps, could he find the torn limbs of his brother? With memories like these in him, and, moreover, given to a certain superstitiousness, as has been said, the courage of this starbuck which could, nevertheless, still flourish, must indeed have been extreme. But it was not in reasonable nature that a man so organized, and with such terrible experiences and remembrances as he had, it was not in nature that these things should fail in latently engendering an element in him which, under suitable circumstances, would break out from its confinement and burn all his courage up. And brave as he might be, it was that sort of bravery chiefly, visible in some intrepid man, which, while generally abiding firm in the conflict with seas, or winds, or whales, or any of the ordinary irrational horrors of the world, yet cannot withstand those more terrific, because more spiritual terrors, which sometimes menace you from the concentrating brow of an enraged and mighty man, but with the coming narrative to reveal in any instance the complete abasement of poor Starbuck's fortitude, scarce might I have the heart to write it, for it is a thing most sorrowful, nay shocking, to expose the fall of valor in the soul. Men may seem detestable as joint stock companies and nations, knaves, fools, and murderers there may be, men may have mean and meager faces, but man, in the ideal, is so noble and so sparkling, such a grand and glowing creature, that over any ignominious blemish in him all his fellows should run to throw their costliest robes. That immaculate manliness we feel within ourselves, so far within us, that it remains intact though all the outer characters seem gone bleeds with keenest anguish at the undraped spectacle of a valor ruined man. Nor can piety itself, at such a shameful sight, completely stifle her upbraidings against the permitting stars. But this august dignity I treat of is not the dignity of kings and robes, but that abounding dignity which has no robed investiture. Thou shalt see it shining in the arm that wields a pick or drives a spike, that democratic dignity which, on all hands, recedes without end from God Himself, the great God absolute, the center and circumference of all democracy, His omnipresence, our divine equality. If, then, to meanest mariners and renegades and castaways, I shall hereafter ascribe high qualities, though dark, weave round them tragic graces, if even the most mournful, perchance the most abased, among them all, shall at times lift himself to the exalted mounts. if I shall touch that workman's arm with some ethereal light, if I shall spread a rainbow over his disastrous set of sun, then against all mortal critics bear me out in it, thou just spirit of equality, which hast spread one royal mantle of humanity over all my kind, bear me out in it, thou great democratic god, who didst not refuse to the swore convict, Bunyan, the pale, poetic pearl, thou who didst clothe with doubly hammered leaves of finest gold, the stumped and paupered arm of old Cervantes, thou who didst pick up Andrew Jackson from the pebbles, who didst hurl him upon a warhorse, who didst thunder him higher than a throne, Thou who, in all thy mighty earthly marchings, ever cullest thy selectest champions from the kingly commons, bear me out in it, O oh God!' Chapter twenty seven: Knights and Squires. Stubb was the second mate. He was a native of Cape Cod, and hence, according to local usage, was called a Cape Cod man; a happy go lucky, neither craven nor valiant taking perils as they came with an indifferent air and while engaged in the most imminent crisis of the chase, toiling away, calm and collected as a journeyman joiner engaged for the year. Good-humoured, easy and careless, he presided over his whale boat as if the most deadly encounter were but a dinner and his crew all invited guests. He was as particular about the comfortable arrangement of his part of the boat, as an old stage driver is about the snugness of his box. When close to the whale, in the very death lock of the fight, he handled his unpitying lance coolly and off-handedly as a whistling tinker his hammer. He would hum over his old riggedy tunes while flank and flank with the most exasperated monster. Long usage had, for this stub, converted the jaws of death into an easy chair. What he thought of death itself, there is no telling. Whether he ever thought of it at all might be a question, but if he ever did chance to cast his mind that way after a comfortable dinner, no doubt, like a good sailor, he took it to be a sort of call of the watch to tumble aloft and bestir themselves there about something which he would find out when he obeyed the order and not sooner. What, perhaps, with other things, made Stubbs such an easy-going, unfearing man, so cheerily trudging off with the burden of life in a world full of grave pedlas, all bowed to the ground with their packs, what helped to bring about that almost impious good-humour of his, that thing must have been his pipe. For, like his nose, his short, black little pipe was one of the regular features of his face you would almost as soon have expected him to turn out of his bunk without his nose as without his pipe. He kept a whole row of pipes there ready loaded, stuck in a rack, within easy reach of his hand, and, whenever he turned in, he smoked them all out in succession, lining one from the other to the end of the chapter, then loading them again to be in readiness anew. For, when Stubb dressed, instead of first putting his legs into his trousers, he put his pipe into his mouth. I say this continual smoking must have been one cause, at least, of his peculiar disposition, for everyone knows that this earthly air, whether ashore or afloat, is terribly infected with the nameless miseries of the numberless mortals who have died exhaling it, and as in time of the cholera, some people go about with a camphorated handkerchief to their mouths, so, likewise, against all mortal tribulations, Stubb's tobacco smoke might have operated as a sort of disinfecting agent. The third mate was Flask, a native of Tisbury, in Martha's Vineyard. A short, stout, ruddy young fellow, very pugnacious concerning whales, who somehow seemed to think that the great leviathans had personally and hereditarily affronted him, and therefore it was a sort of point of honour with him to destroy them whenever encountered so utterly lost was he to all sense of reverence for the many marvels of their majestic bulk and mystic ways and so dead to anything like an apprehension of any possible danger from encountering them that in his poor opinion the wondrous whale was but a species of magnified mouse or at least water rat requiring only a little circumvention and some small application of time and trouble in order to kill and boil this ignorant Unconscious fearlessness of his made him a little waggish in the matter of whales, he followed these fish for the fun of it, and a three years voyage round Cape Horn was only a jolly joke that lasted that length of time. As a carpenter's nails are divided into wrought nails and cut nails, so mankind may be similarly divided. Little Flask was one of the raw ones, made to clench tight and last long. They called him King Post on board of the Pequod because, in form, he could be well likened to the short, square timber known by that name in Arctic Whalers, and which by the means of many radiating side timbers inserted into it, serves to brace the ship against the icy concussions of those battering seas. Now these three mates, Starbuck, Stubb, and Flask, were momentous men. They was who, by universal prescription, commanded three of the Pequod's boats as headsmen. In that grand order of battle, in which Captain Ahab would probably marshal his forces to descend on the whales, these three headsmen were as captains of companies. Or, being armed with their long, keen whaling spears, they were as a picked trio of lancers, even as the harpooners were flingers of javelins. And since in this famous fishery, each mate or headsman, like a gothic knight of old, is always accompanied by his boat steerer or harpooneer who in certain conjunctures provides him with a fresh lance, when the former one has been badly twisted or elbowed in the assault, and moreover, as there generally subsists between the two a close intimacy and friendliness, it is therefore but meet that in this place we set down who the Pequod's harpooneers were, and to what headsmen each of them belonged. First of all was Queequeg, whom Starbuck, the chief mate, had selected for his squire. But Queequeg is already known. Next was Tashtego, an unmixed Indian from Gay Head, the most westerly promontory of Martha's Vineyard, where there still exists the last remnant of a village of red men which has long supplied the neighbouring island of Nantucket with many of her most daring harpooners. In the fishery, they usually go by the generic name of Gayheaders. Tashtago's Tashtego's long, lean, sable hair, his high cheekbones, and black rounding eyes for an Indian, oriental in their largeness, but Antarctic in their glittering expression, All this sufficiently proclaimed him an inheritor of the unvitiated blood of those proud warrior hunters who, in quest of the great New England Moose, had scoured, bow in hand, the aboriginal forests of the Maine. But no longer snuffing in the trail of the wild beasts of the woodland, Tashtego now hunted in the wake of the great whales of the sea, the unerring harpoon of the sun fiddly replacing the infallible arrow of the sires. To look at the tawny brawn of his lithe snaky limbs, you would almost have credited the superstitions of some of the earlier Puritans and half believed this wild Indian to be a son of the Prince of the Powers of the Air. Tashtego was Stubb, the second mate's squire. Third among the Harpooners was Degu, a gigantic, coal-black negro savage with a lion-like tread and an to behold. Suspended from his ears were two golden hoops, so large that the sailors called them ringbolts and would talk of securing the topsail halyards to them. In his youth, Deku had voluntarily shipped on board of a whaler, lying in a lonely bay on his native coast. And never having been anywhere in the world but in Africa, Nantucket, and the pagan harbors most frequented by whalemen, and having now led for many years the bold life of the fishery in the ships of owners uncommonly heedful of what manner of men they shipped, Gu retained all his barbaric virtues and erect as a giraffe, moved about the decks and all the pomp of six feet five in his socks. There was a corporeal humility in looking up at him, and a white man standing before him seemed a white flag come to bake truce of a fortress. Curious to tell, this imperial negro, As Tagu, was the squire of Little Flask, who looked like a chessman beside him. As for the residue of the Pequod's company, be it said that at the present day not one in two of the many thousand men before the mast employed in the American whale fishery are Americans born, though pretty nearly all the officers are. Herein, it is the same with the American whale fishery as with the American army and military and merchant navies and the engineering forces employed in the construction of the American canals and railroads. The same, I say, because in all these cases the Native American liberally provides the brains the rest of the world as generously supplying the muscles. No small number of these whaling seamen belong to the Azores, where the outward-bound Nantucket whalers frequently touched to augment their crews from the hardy peasants of those rocky shores. In like manner, the Greenland whalers sailing out of Hull or London put in at the Shetland Islands to receive the full complement of their crew. Upon the passage homewards, they dropped them there again. How it is, there is no telling but islanders seemed to make the best whale men. They were nearly all islanders in the Pequod, isolados too, I call such, not acknowledging the common continent of men, but each isolado living on a separate continent of his own. Yet now, federated along one keel, what a set these isolados were. An Anacharsis Clut's deputation from all the isles of the sea and all the ends of the earth accompanying old Abe and the Pequot to lay the world's grievances before that bar from which not very many of them ever come back. Black little Pip, he never did, oh no, he went before, poor Alabama boy. On the grim Pequot's foc'sle, ye shall ere long see him beating his tambourine, perlusive of the eternal time, when sent for to the great quarterdeck on high. He was bid strike him with angels, and beat his tambourine in glory. Called a coward here, held a hero there. Chapter 28 Ahab For several days after leaving Nantucket, nothing above hatches was seen of Captain Ahab. The mates regularly relieved each other at the watches, and for aught that could be seen to the contrary, they seemed to be the only commanders of the ship only they sometimes issued from the cabin with orders so sudden and peremptory that after all it was plain they but commanded vicariously. Yes, their supreme lord and dictator was there, though hitherto unseen by any eyes not permitted to penetrate into the now sacred retreat of the cabin. Every time I ascended to the deck from my watches below, I instantly gazed after to mark if any strange face were visible, for my first faint disquietude touching the unknown captain, now in the seclusion of the sea, became almost a perturbation. This was strangely heightened at times by the ragged Elijah's diabolical incoherences uninvitedly recurring to me with a subtle energy I could not have before conceived of. But poorly could I withstand them, much as in other moods I was almost ready to smile at the solemn whimsicalities of that outlandish prophet of the wharves. But whatever it was of apprehensiveness or uneasiness, to call it so, which I felt, yet whenever I came to look about me in the ship, it seemed against all warrantry to cherish such emotions. For though the Harpooners, with the great body of the crew, were a far more barbaric, heathenish, and motley-set than any of the tame merchant ship companies which my previous experiences had made me acquainted with, still I ascribed this, and rightly ascribed it, the fierce uniqueness of the very nature of that wild Scandinavian vocation in which I had so abandonedly embarked. But it was especially the aspect of the three chief officers of the ship, the mates, which was most forcibly calculated to allay these colorless misgivings and induce confidence and cheerfulness in every presentment of the voyage. Three better, more likely sea officers and men, each in his own different way, could not readily be found, and they were every one of them Americans, a Nantucketer, a vineyarder, a cape man. Now, it being Christmas when the ship shot from her harbor, for a space we had biting polar weather, though all the time running away from it to the southward, and by every degree and minute of latitude which we sailed, gradually leaving that merciless winter and all its intolerable weather behind us. It was one of those less lowering, but still grey and gloomy enough mornings of the transition, when with a fair wind the ship was rushing through the water with a vindictive sort of leaping and melancholy rapidity that as I mounted to the deck at the call of the forenoon watch, so soon as I leveled my glance towards the taffrail, foreboding shivers ran over me. Reality outran apprehension, Captain Ahab stood upon his quarterdeck. There seemed no sign of common bodily illness about him, nor the recovery from any. He looked like a man cut away from the stake, when the fire has overrunningly wasted all the limbs without consuming them or taking away one particle from their compacted aged robustness. His whole high, broad form seemed made of solid bronze and shaped in an unalterable mold, like Cellini's cast Perseus. Threading its way out from among his gray hairs, and continuing right down one side of his tawny, scorched face and neck, till it disappeared in his clothing, you saw a slender rod-like mark, lividly whitish. It resembled that perpendicular seam sometimes made in the straight, lofty trunk of a great tree, when the upper lightning tearingly darts down it, and without wrenching a single twig, peels and grooves out the bark from top to bottom, hair running off into the soil, leaving the tree still greenly alive, but branded. Whether that mark was born with him, or whether it was the scar left by some desperate wound, no one could certainly say. By some tacit consent, throughout the voyage little or no allusion was made to it, especially by the mates. But once Tashtego Sr. An old gay-head Indian among the crew superstitiously asserted that not till he was full forty years old did Ahab become that way branded, and then it came upon him, not in the fury of any mortal fray, but in an elemental strife at sea. Yet this wild hint seemed inferentially negatived by what a gray manxman insinuated, an old sepulchral man, who, having never before sailed out of Nantucket, had never ere this laid eye upon wild Ahab. Nevertheless, the old sea traditions, the immemorial credulities, popularly invested this old matesman with preternatural powers of discernment. So that no white sailor seriously contradicted him when he said that if ever Captain Ahab should be tranquilly laid out, which might hardly come to pass, so he muttered, then, whoever should do that last office for the dead, would find a birthmark on him from crown to soul. So powerfully did the whole grim aspect of Ahab affect me and the livid brand which streaked it that for the first few moments I hardly noted that not a little of this overbearing grimness was owing to the barbaric white leg upon which he partly stood. It had previously come to me that this ivory leg had at sea been fashioned from the polished bone of the sperm whale's jaw. Aye, he was dismasted off Japan, said the old gay Indian once but like his dismasted craft, he shipped another mass without coming home for it. He has a quiver of M. I was struck with the singular posture he maintained. Upon each side of the Pequod's quarter deck, and pretty close to the mizzen shrouds, there was an auger hole, bored about half an inch or so, into the plank. His bone leg steadied in that hole, one arm elevated, and holding by a shroud, Captain Ahab stood erect, looking straight out beyond the ship's ever-pitching prow. There was an infinity of firmest fortitude, a determinate, unsurrenderable willfulness in the fixed and fearless, forward dedication of that glance. Not a word he spoke, nor did his officers say aught to him though by all their minutest gestures and expressions, they plainly showed the uneasy, if not painful, consciousness of being under a troubled master eye. And not only that, but Moody's stricken Ahab stood before them with a crucifixion in his face, in all the nameless regal overbearing dignity of some mighty woe, ere long from his first visit in the air, he withdrew into his cabin, but after that morning, He was every day visible to the crew, either standing in his pivot hole or seated upon an ivory stool he had, or heavily walking the deck. As the sky grew less gloomy, indeed, began to grow a little genial, he became still less and less a recluse, as if, when the ship had sailed from home, nothing but the dead, wintry bleakness of the sea had then kept him so secluded, and, by and by, it came to pass, that he was almost continually in the air, but, as yet, for all that he said, or perceptibly did, on the at last sunny deck, he seemed as unnecessary there as another mast. But the Pequod was only making a passage now, not regularly cruising, nearly all whaling preparatives needing supervision the mates were fully competent to, so that there was little or nothing out of himself to employ or excite Ahab, now, and thus chase away, for that one interval, the clouds that layer upon layer were piled upon his brow, as ever all clouds choose the loftiest peaks to pile themselves upon. Nevertheless, ere long, the warm, warbling persuasiveness of the pleasant, holiday weather we came to, seemed gradually to charm him from his mood. For, as when the red-cheeked, dancing girls, April and May, trip home to the wintry, misanthropic woods, even the barest, ruggedest, most thundercloven old oak will at least send forth some few green sprouts to welcome such glad-hearted visitants, so Ahab did, in the end, a little respond to the playful allurings of that girlish air. More than once did he put forth the faint blossom of a look which, in any other man, would have soon flowered out in a smile. Chapter 29 Enter Ahab, to him, Stub Some days elapsed, and ice and icebergs all asterned, the Pequod now went rolling through the bright Keto spring, which, at sea, almost perpetually rains on the threshold of the eternal August of the tropic. The warmly cool, clear, ringing, perfumed, overflowing, redundant days were as crystal goblets of Persian sherbet, heaped up, flaked up. With rose water smell. The starred and stately nights seemed haughty dames in jeweled velvets, nursing at home in lonely pride the memory of their absent conquering earls, the golden helmeted sons. For sleeping man, twas hard to choose between such winsome days and such seducing nights. But all the witcheries of that unwaning weather did not merely lend new spells and potencies to the outward world. Inward they turned upon the soul, especially when the still-mild hours of Eve came on, then memory shot her crystals as the clear eyes most forms of noiseless twilights. And all these subtle agencies, more and more they wrought on Ahab's texture. Old age is always wakeful, as if, the longer linked with life, the less man has to do with all that looks like death. Among sea commanders, the old graveyards will oftenest leave their berths to visit the nightcloak deck. It was so with Ahab, only that now, of late, he seemed so much to live in the open air that, truly speaking, his visits were more to the cabin than from the cabin to the planks. It feels like going down into one's tomb, he would mutter to himself, for an old captain like me to be descending this narrow scuttle to go to my grave dug berth. So, Almost every twenty-four hours, when the watches of the night were set, and the band on deck sentinel the slumbers of the band below, and when if a rope was to be hauled upon the forecastle, the sailors flung it not rudely down, as by day, but with some cautiousness dropped it to its place for fear of disturbing their slumbering shipmates, when this sort of steady quietude would begin to prevail, habitually, the silent steersman would watch the cabin scuttle, and ere long the old man would emerge, gripping at the iron banister, to help his crippled way. Some considering touch of humanity was in him, for at times like these, he usually abstained from patrolling the quarterdeck, because to his weary mates, seeking repose within six inches of his ivory heel, such would have been the reverberating crack and din of that bony step, that their dreams would have been on the crunching teeth of sharks. But once, the mood was on him too deep for common regardings, and as with heavy, lumber-like pace he was measuring the ship from taffrail to mainmast. Stubb, the old second mate, came up from below with a certain unassured, deprecating humorousness, hinted that if Captain Ahab was pleased to walk the planks, then no one could say nay, but there might be some way of muffling the noise. Hinting something indistinctly and hesitatingly about a globe of tow. And the insertion into it of the ivory. Heel, ah, Stub! Thou didst not know Ahab then. Am I a cannonball, Stub? Said Ahab, that thou wouldst want me that fashion. But go thy ways. I have forgot. Below to thy nightly grave, where such as ye sleep between shrouds, to use ye to the filling one at last. Down, dog, and kennel. Starting at the unforeseen concluding exclamation of the so suddenly scornful old man, Stubb was speechless a moment, then said excitedly, I am not used to be spoken to that way, sir, I do, but less than half like it, sir. A vast, Gritted Ahab between his set teeth and violently moving away, as if to avoid some passionate temptation. No, sir, not yet, said Stubb emboldened, I will not tamely be called a dog, sir. Then be called ten times a donkey and a mule and an ass, and be gone, where I'll clear the world of thee. As he said this, Ahab advanced upon him with such overbearing terrors in his aspect that Stubb involuntarily retreated. I was never served so before without giving a hard blow for it, muttered stop as he found himself descending the cabin scuttle. It's very queer. Stop, stop, somehow, now, I don't know whether to go back and strike him or what's that, down here on my knees and pray for him. Yes, that was the thought coming up in me, but it would be the first time I ever did pray. It's queer, very queer, and he's queer too, I Take him fore and aft, he's about the queerest old man's tub ever sailed with. How he flashed at me, his eyes like powder pans. Is he mad? Anyway, there's something on his mind, as sure as there must be something on a deck when it cracks. He ain't in his bed now, either, more than three hours out of the 24, and he don't sleep then. Didn't that dope boy, the steward, Tell me that of a morning he always finds the old man's hammock clothes all rumpled and tumbled, and the sheets down at the foot, and the coverlet almost tied into knots, and the pillow a sort of frightful hot, as though a baked brick had been on it? A hot old man. I guess he's got what some folks ashore call a conscience. It's a kind of tick dolly row, they say, worse nor a toothache. Well, well, I don't know what it is. But the Lord keep me from catching it. He's full of riddles. I wonder what he goes into the afterhold for every night, as Dilboy tells me he suspects. What's that for? I should like to know? Who's made appointments with him in the hold? Ain't that queer, now? But there's no telling, it's the old game, here goes for a snooze. Damn me, it's worth a fellow's while to be born into the world if only to fall right asleep. And now that I think of it, that's about the first thing babies do, and that's a sort of queer, too. Damn me, but all things are queer, come to think of them. But that's against my principles. Think not is my 11th commandment, and sleep when you can is my 12th, so here goes again. But how's that? Didn't he call me a dog? blazes. He caught me 10 times a donkey and piled a lot of jackasses on top of that. He might as well have kicked me and done with it. Maybe he did kick me and I didn't observe it. I was so taken all aback with his brow somehow. It flashed like a bleached bone. What the devil's the matter with me? I don't stand right on my legs coming afoul of that old man has a sort of turned me wrong side out. By the Lord, I must have been dreaming, though. How? 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 But the only way is to stash it, so here it goes to hammock again, and in the morning I'll see how this plaguey juggling thinks over by daylight. Chapter 30 The Pipe When had departed, Aab stood for a while leaning over the bulwarks, and then, as had been usual with him of late, calling a sailor of the watch, he sent him below for his ivory stool and also his pipe. Lighting the pipe at the binnacle lamp and planting the stool on the weather side of the deck, he sat and smoked. In Old Norse times, the thrones of the sea-loving Danish kings were fabricated, set tradition of the tusks of the narwhal. How could one look at Ahab then, seated on that tripod of bones, without bethinking him of the royalty it symbolized? For a Khan of the plank, and a king of the sea, and a great lord of leviathans was Ahab. Some moments passed, during which the thick vapor came from his mouth in quick and constant puffs which blew back again into his face. How now he soliloquized at last, withdrawing the tube This smoking no longer soothes. Oh, my pipe! Hard must it go with me if thy charm be gone? Here have I been unconsciously toiling, not pleasuring, I, and ignorantly smoking to windward all the while, to windward, and with such nervous whiffs, as if, like the dying whale, my final jets were the strongest and fullest of trouble. What business have I with this pipe? This thing that is meant for sereneness, to send up mild white vapors among mild white hairs, not among torn iron-gray locks like mine. I'll smoke no more. He tossed the still-lighted pipe into the sea. The fire hissed in the waves, the same instant the ship shot by the bubble the sinking pipe made. With slouched hat, Ahab lurchingly paced the planks. Chapter 31 Queen Mab. Next morning, Stub accosted Flask. Such a queer dream, king post, I never had. You know the old man's ivory leg. While I dreamed he kicked me with it, and when I tried to kick back, upon my soul, my little man, I kicked my leg right off. And then, presto. Ahab seemed a pyramid, and I, like a blazing fool, kept kicking at it. But what was still more curious, flask, you know how curious all dreams are. Through all this rage that I was in, I somehow seemed to be thinking to myself that after all, it was not much of an insult that kicked from Ahab. Why, thinks I, what's the row? It's not a real leg, only a false leg. And there's a mighty difference between a living thump and a dead thump. That's what makes a blow from the hand flask fifty times more savage to bear than a blow from a cane. The living member that makes the living insult, my little man. And thinks I to myself all the while, mind, while I was stubbing my silly toes against that cursed pyramid so confoundedly contradictory was it all. All the while, I say, I was thinking to myself, what's his like now but a cane, a whalebone cane. Yes, thinks I, it was only a playful cudgeling. in fact, only a whale boning that he gave me, not a base kick. Besides, thinks I, look at it once, why, the end of it, the foot part, what a small sort of end it is, whereas, if a broad-footed farmer kick me, there is a devilish broad insult. But this insult is whittled down to a point only. But now comes the greatest joke of the dream, Flask. While I was battering away at the pyramid, a sort of badger-haired old merman with a hump on his back takes me by the shoulders and slews me round. Where are you bound? says he. Slid. Man, but I was frightened. Such a fizz. But somehow, next moment I was over the fright. What am I about? Says I at last. And what business is that of yours? I should like to know, Mr. Humpback. Do you want a kick? By the Lord, Flask. I had no sooner said that than he turned round his stern to me, bent over and dragging up a lot of seaweed he had for a cloud. What do you think? I saw. Why thunder alive? Man, his stern was stuck full of marlin spikes with the points out says I, on second thoughts, I guess I won't kick you, old fellow. Why stub, said he, Why stub, and kept muttering it all the time, a sort of eating of his own gums like a chimney hack. Seeing he wasn't going to stop saying over his wise stub, wise stub, I thought I might as well fall to kicking the pyramid again. But I had only just lifted my foot for it, when he roared out, stop that kicking. Hello, says I, what's the matter now, old fellow? Look here, says he, let's argue the insult. Captain Ahab, Kiki, didn't he? Yes, he did, says I, right here it was. Very good, says he, he used his ivory leg, didn't he? Yes, he did, says I, well then, says he, why stop, what have you to complain of? didn't he kick with right goodwill? It wasn't a common pitch pine leg he kicked with, was it? No, you were kicked by a great man and with a beautiful ivory leg, stub. It's an honor, I consider it an honor. Listen, why stub? In old England, the greatest lords think it great glory to be slapped by a queen and made garner knights of, but be your boast, stub. That you were kicked by old ahab and made a wise man of remember what i say be kicked by him account his kicks honors and on no account kick back for you can't help yourself why stop don't you see that pyramid with that he all of a sudden seemed somehow in some queer fashion to swim off into the air i snored rolled over and there i was in my hammock Now, what do you think of that dream, Flask? I don't know, it seems a sort of foolish to me, though. Maybe, maybe, but it's made a wise man of me, Flask. Do you see Ahab standing there, sideways looking over the stern? Well, the best thing you can do, Flask, is to let the old man alone never speak to him, whatever he says. Hello. What's that he shouts? Hark. Masthead, there. Look sharp, all of ye. There are whales hereabouts. If ye see a white one, split your lungs for him. What do you think of that now, flask? Ain't there a small drop of something queer about that, eh? A white whale, did you mark that, man? Look ye, there is something special in the wind. Stand by for it, flask. Ahab has that that is bloody on his mind. But, Mum, he comes this way.